Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Would you please uh, take up your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 17. If you're new to us, we're in uh, a series working through 2 Samuel, and that can be found on page 268 in the black uh, Bibles, or 316 if you've got one of the large uh, blueprint, uh, sorry, blue large print Bibles. To Samuel chapter 17, we'll read the whole chapter. And we've got to the point where Absalom, is a pretender to the throne, has um, conspired and David has fled Jerusalem and Absalom has entered uh, the city. Ahithophel is uh, a chief advisor uh, to, to Absalom. Let's listen to God's words together. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I'll come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I'll bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. And Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. 
Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of, of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. And Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house. They said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the, the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise, go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machia the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Basili the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Amen. Some of us this evening sit with pens and paper in front of us, taking notes, or, well, I don't know what you do. Uh, maybe taking notes throughout the, the sermon week by week. If you had to draw your life this evening, if that was the task, to draw your life, what would you draw? So there you have it, pen, paper in hand, and one image on the paper to capture, to sum up your life, one main idea. What would be there at the end as you handed the paper in? I think at this, this point, friends, we see most clearly, with a question like that, we see most clearly the difference between people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and people who don't. I think very simply, people without Christ, when you say to them, draw your life, sum up your life, or take a picture of your life, what, what is it that you want everybody to see about you? What's the one picture you can have left on Instagram at the end, the one thing. I think people without Christ, they draw themselves, don't they? 
They, they draw their, their loved ones, their achievements. The greatest thing about them is their lives, right? But what do Christian people draw? What, what's in the frame for people who know and love the Lord Jesus? Now, I want to show you and tell you this evening from Second Samuel chapter 17. It's a simple story. Absalom has two men advising him, Ahithophel's plan, Hushai's plan. Which one will he choose and which one will succeed? Which plan will win? There's a hinge to this chapter. There's one main point, an explicit theological statement. It is the only theological statement in the chapter. And it's driving the whole narrative. It is the engine for the story. It's the verse where we see the playwright writing the script. And I want to express that one verse to you in one sentence. And then I want to show you the story unfolding in another point with its lessons for us. Here's the first thing to see this evening. The first of two main things. Number one, friend, you live in a world with one royal, usually forgotten throne. You live in a world with one royal, usually forgotten throne. Or if you, want, if, you, if you prefer it in verse form, singing form, there is a higher throne than all this world has known. And then here's the second thing I want us to see as well. Number two, you belong to a God with one perfect, often surprising plan. Brothers and sisters, you belong to a God who has one perfect but often surprising plan. Point one, a world with one royal, usually forgotten throne. It's really clear that we're meant to see that, isn't it? Did you catch the theology of the chapter, verse 14? As Will read it to us, chapter 17, verse 14, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, here's the two plans, but the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? For the, the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. See how it works? There's two types of counsel. There's two men, Hushai's counsel, Ahithophel's counsel. Two plans. Which is better? Which will win? Here's what you need to know. The Lord has ordained the Lord has ordained. If you're looking at it closely, you'll see there's a little footnote beside the word ordained pointing down to the bottom of the page saying it, it could be commanded. The Lord commanded. The Lord has said one of these plans will be defeated and one will succeed. It's why I've put the word royal into the point. Ordained is a royal word, isn't it? It means to decree something. And commanded is a royal word. It means to proclaim something. This is what will happen. So, friends, what we're watching as we read chapter 17, what we're watching is not whether Ahithophel's plan will fail. No, no we're simply watching how Ahithophel's plan fails. Not, not whether, but how. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? From verse 14... You and I have the narrator's inside theological perspective on this story. And friends, it is the Bible's inside story on everything. 
on everything in the Bible and in my life and in your life, that what the Lord ordains, what he commands, what he decrees, what he proclaims will happen, happens. It's why I've given the sermon the title that you have printed in front of you this evening. It's the third verse of Charles Wesley's hymn, isn't it? Rejoice, the Lord is King. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. So friends, take up your pen, or if you want to take a photo instead, you're not into drawing, you want to capture it in an image, take up your pen this evening, brother, sister, to put the story of your life into one frame. What are you going to draw? Very simply, we should be sketching a throne. A throne. That's what Second Samuel chapter 17 is all about, isn't it? Do you remember the words of Psalm 2? The opening of the psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's not, it's, not, it's not simply descriptive. Look, here's the nations of the world and the peoples plotting against God's king. It's not that. It's a question. Why? Why, why do they do it? Because God himself is saying, I have installed my king in Zion. I've put him there. He's safe. We, we used to find when our children were a lot smaller, it was one of the most colorful and clear ways of talking to our children about the beauty of the Lord Jesus and about the ugliness of our own hearts to use king language. In that spat over the remote control or the Lego or whoever's go it is on the iPad, who wants to be king? It's the question, isn't it? And then, of course, mum and dad, as you're using that language to the children, you begin to realize it's so helpful for yourself in your spats. The the strop in the corner, your self-pity as you nurse a a, a grievance, your teenage angst, your, your growing old and bitter and angry towards God. Who is king in your world? Jesus or you? Oh, friends, you live in a world with one, one royal but usually forgotten throne. Isn't that true? Above all other thrones, there is a higher throne. Above all human royalty, one divine throne. So interesting, wasn't it? King Charles's coronation. Didn't we see that so clearly? The, the kind of mystical bit, the high point of the ceremony that his anointing happens behind a screen. And yet as the screen is removed, who, who, who do you see? A mere man stripped down to his shirt. The whole point of it is to show that his royalty is then given to him as a gift. It, it's not innate. It's not, it's not natural. Yes, he's born into the royal line, but it is still a gift not actually his by mere right of being a man. Oh, but there is a king who rules, Second Samuel says. There is a king who rules because he is divine, because he had no beginning and had no end. Friends, with this king, there will never be a cabinet reshuffle. There will be no coup. And the only way to be truly happy is to love this king. And to love what he ordains and what he commands and what he proclaims. And to not fight against him. 
Can, can I put it like this, friends, that whatever you're living through now, this very evening, this very moment, in all the nooks and crannies of your life, Second Samuel 17, verse 14, is true for you, for me, for the world, for everyone. The big question in our life is never whether Jesus wins. No, we're simply participating in how he wins. Isn't that right? Remember Ephesians chapter 1 when we looked at it? God is bringing everything together under Jesus as king. That is what he's doing. He's working everything out together under Christ as king. And we are simply living how that happens. In this world in which we live, this verse, verse 14 says, we are guests of God's reality, not he of ours. We are guests of God's reality. In this world, because it's his world, he runs it. And he's put the Lord Jesus in charge of it and he's put us here as his guests. We are invited guests. He made the world. He made the garden. He, he called us in and said it's yours, but I made it. I own it, now you enjoy it. We are invited guests of his reality. We are loved guests. So loved, friends, in fact, he has adopted us as his children. But he's the one who gets to call the shots, not us. He's the one who gets to say what's true and what is false, what is good and what is evil and what is beautiful and what is ugly. We are guests of his reality and what have we done? The guests have done away with the host, haven't they? You see it, don't you? You hear it from time to time. The Airbnb guests who move in and say, thank you very much. It's ours now. We'll take it from here. The guests have tried to kill the manager. The vineyard tenants have tried to usurp the vineyard owner. The subjects of the kingdom have tried to do away with the king. It's our world, isn't it? We will say what is real. We will say what is true and good and beautiful. Facebook, the last time I checked, I don't know if it still does it, Facebook offers 71 gender options to classify yourself in your profile. Away with simplistic binary distinctions. Our friends, whatever it is this evening, take your pick from whatever state of turmoil and difficulty you find yourself in this evening. And some of our wounds are very deep, aren't they? And some of our bewilderment is very profound. But that is us, not God. God is not in heaven wringing his hands at the state of the world. Why not? Psalm 2, I have installed my king in Zion. Oh, he's raised the Lord Jesus from, from death, seated him at his right hand in glory. And because he has made Jesus king, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing in all the world will overthrow him. I want you to leave this evening, friends, with the big picture of the universe as clear as a bell to your eyes. It's clear as a bell and it's this. Jesus runs the world, not you or me or anyone else. Jesus is king. There is one royal, usually forgotten throne. So just look at the second part of this. That's all in one verse. We haven't even touched the story. Here's, here's the story, point two. You belong to a God with one 
perfect but often surprising plan. So the plan is perfect, but it is often surprising in the way it works out. The Lord Jesus wins. Yes, his throne endures forever. But friends, look at the surprises along the way. They kind of tumble, don't they, out of this story at every turn. And they're beautiful for us. For it's not just the throne that comforts us. I hope it does. But the way that God rules from that throne, I suspect is not the way you or I would rule if we were given half the chance. There are bends in the road, aren't there, here? There are valleys, there are mountaintops, there are heroes as well as villains. There are surprises along the way. I want to just show you two of the surprises. Two of the surprises. Here's the first one. To execute his plan, God uses a surprising variety of people. That's what's going on in this story. God uses a surprising variety of people. Evil people serve his plan. Good people serve his plan. Clever people serve his plan. And foolish people serve it. And even when all seems lost and wickedness seems invincible, God can surprise us with what he does and who he provides. Friends, let me put it like this. As God works out his perfect plan, there are people you and I will remember forever. And there are people whose names we will never know. And both are essential. Both are essential in God's plan. Just look how it happens here. I think chapter 17, it is a surprise that Ahithophel's plan fails because, I wonder if you spotted this, it's a surprise that it fails because it's actually the best plan. It's a wise plan. It's the right plan. If you want to bring down David then so much of what Ahithophel says here is correct. This would be the way to do it. You see what he says? Let me choose 12,000 men. 12,000, probably 1,000 from each of the 12 tribes. So if you take down David in this way, you have already united the people under your leadership. Verse 2, I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged. That, That is exactly how David is, isn't he? exactly it's it's ruthless it's effective there's political savvy and it is more correct than the plan that Hushai counters with see what Hushai says in verse 8 you know that your father and his men are mighty men and they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field no no, they are weak and weary They're, they're licking their wounds in a field in the corner And yet, friends, notice that Hushai is clever enough to spot a profound weakness in Ahithophel's plans. Just put your eyes again on verse 2, down to verse the end of verse 3, and read it to yourself, knowing what you know about Absalom. Okay, remember what we've seen about Absalom. What kind of man is he? What is the potential weakness? In Ahithophel's plans. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. 
Do you remember what I said last week? What kind of man is Absalom? What did we call him last week? Lord Luscious Locks. Remember? Hair flowing. Not, not a blemish on him from head to his toe. Hushai knows Absalom does not want to share the glory with anyone. Not with Ahithophel, not with his chief commander, not with anyone. And when Ahithophel says to Absalom, I will come upon him. Look, you, you sit down and relax, Absalom. Let, let me do this for you. Uh, I think Hushai sees the weakness. No, he says in verse 8, when it's his turn to present his option, he says to Absalom, you, you know. You, you know what's really going on here. You know your father better than anyone, Absalom. And you should be the one to lead these men into battle. Look at verse 11. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. Verse 11, my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, Absalom, from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person so we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. Friends, if there was dramatic film music, this is where it is playing. And we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. We will, we will cover him completely and suffocate him. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. You know, what, what one commentator says, what Hushai is doing here is absolutely perfect. He's, he wants us to imagine the scene. Here is Absalom just daydreaming now daydreaming about himself in his chariot. As Hushai is speaking, he can imagine himself standing there, his locks flowing out behind him in the wind as he rides into battle. Yes, I see it, Hushai. I'm going to win. It's perfect, isn't it? He, he, he spots the weakness in Ahithophel's plan. And remember what Sinclair said this morning that some people are able to do? He just begins to pull on the threads. And Absalom's very worldview becomes the very weakness that Hushai uses to bring him down. He pulls on the threads of how he sees himself and sees the world. He, he looked at this man and he found the chink in his armor. Friends, I want to say to us this evening, sometimes in, in executing his plan, Sometimes God gives his church friends of the king who are wiser than the wisest of their enemies. Isn't that right? Sometimes God gives his people, people who love the Lord Jesus, who are wiser than the wisest of their enemies. Sometimes in the seasons of the church's life, there are Hushais. There, there are Augustines or Calvin's, or C.S. Lewis's, or what many have called the C.S. Lewis of our day, Tim Keller. And sometimes God gives his people who, who, who seem to have this, he gives his people, other people among them, who have this innate ability, and yet it is a gift from God, isn't it, to just pull on the strings and cause things to unravel. And so, friends, what do we do when the Hushais of this world, 
The, the Hushais of this world and the Augustines of this world and the Calvins of this world and the C.S. Lewis's of this world. What do we do when they leave us? Are we lost? Will the kingdom fail? I know, friends, that some of you feel this very, very deeply. Some of you have lived through this. You know this. Your, your very experience is this, isn't it? What now, Lord? What now, Lord? What, 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 what can possibly come out of this now that we've lost him or her? Is this it? Church history knows this, doesn't it? Do you remember when we were beginning Second Samuel? I, I, I told you about John Calvin, the great reformer. When he lay dying, one of his biographers says, as he lay dying, they gathered round his bed, distraught with grief, for there would be none other like him. What, what will we do now? Benjamin Warfield the great theologian of Princeton Seminary in the United States, a, a college built for training gospel ministers that did incalculable good for the gospel. Incalculable good. Warfield was known as the Lion of Princeton. And when Warfield died, Gresham Machen said at, at Warfield's funeral that when they carried him out of the chapel, old Princeton went with him. In other words, it's over. He's gone. Friends, remember what I said as we began this series in 2 Samuel. He, here is a sharp scalpel. He, here is God's painfully merciful dividing fork to help you and I detach ourselves from seeing the triumph of God's story as dependent on the servants that he sends. No, 2 Samuel is the story of how God wants us to detach ourselves from our leaders if we ever think the success of God's kingdom depends on our leaders. It's very real, isn't it? That after the death of a Martin Lloyd-Jones, the death of a William Still, John Stott, J.I. Packer. For look, friends, is Hushai enough to bring about God's plan? Isn't that, isn't that the amazing thing about this story? Is Hushai enough? Does it all depend on him? Look at verse 15. Does verse 15 win the day by itself? Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom, and the elders of Israel, and thus so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the forge of the wilderness. But by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. In other words, Absalom chooses Hushai. He chooses the man who's actually going to bring about his own downfall. And off they go. The plan is going to be actioned. But is it enough? Is Hushai's wisdom enough? Verse 17, now Jonathan and Ahimez were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them. And they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. Verse 18, but a young man saw them and told Absalom, and both of them went away quickly. And you see what happens? This unnamed female servant hides them in her well. 
who is needed to execute God's plan? Hushai, the hero with intellectual cunning, guile, the political nice, psychological savvy, to weigh up a personality type, to find the chink in the armor. He's an amazing kind of leader, isn't he? What a servant Hushai was, but is it enough? Is that all God uses to execute his plan? No, look at the surprise from verse 17 onwards. A female servant. Unnamed. Unknown. Do you see it, friends? Do you see the surprise? How does God execute his one perfect plan? Very simply by using a multiplicity of ways and a multiplicity of servants. Some of whom, whose names you will remember forever. Although I suspect you've probably never heard of Hushai before we did Second Samuel. And you'll forget him again soon enough, won't you? Don't worry. And some whose names, well, it's not, that, it's not that we forget them. It's that we never know them. We're never even told them. Isn't that amazing? Brothers and sisters, in the end, wise Hushai, an unnamed woman, who matters most in executing God's plan? Who matters most? Both. Both are needed. Isn't that God's way of surprising us? Listen to Tim Keller on the early years of his ministry. He spent nine years in his first church in Hopewell in Virginia. He says this, I learned in those years not to build a ministry on leadership charisma, which I didn't have anyway, or preaching skill, which wasn't so much there early on, But I learned to build my ministry on loving people pastorally and repenting when I was in the wrong. In a small town, people will follow you if they trust you, your character personally, and that trust has to be built on personal relationships. In those early years, my sermons were too long. My pastoral approaches to some people just didn't work. I was sometimes too direct, sometimes not direct enough. I started new programs that nobody really wanted. But because the congregation was so supportive and loving, I was able to make those mistakes without anyone ever attacking me for them. In other words, friends, the Keller that you and I benefited from, the the, the man who became who he was to feed and nurture so many, became who he was, do you see what he's saying? Through the love of people whose names we will never know. People who we will never know anything about them, loved him, served him. And yet God used them in profound ways. I wonder if you know this quote from George Eliot in her novel Middlemarch. Some of you remember this from your school days, reading books like this. Listen to this. If, if I haven't used this before, brace yourselves. I'm going to start using this all the time from now on. Here's your first outing for it. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Isn't that beautiful? That that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been 
is half owing to the number who faithfully live a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs, just like this woman here. Imagine, friends, no foresight to open a hole in the ground to put two men in it. No message gets to David and Absalom wins. We don't know who she is. Oh, Second Samuel is saying, friends, we do not get to choose what God will do with our faithfulness. We just simply get to be faithful. The rest is in his hands. I want to finish with this. I want to show you one more thing about God's surprising plan. Here's the second thing. Don't just never forget that God uses different people in different ways. Secondly, never forget God's plan is based on shocking grace and forgiveness. God's plan is based on shocking grace and forgiveness. I want us just to look at Ahithophel as we finish. What a tragic figure. Verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, does he repent? Does he say sorry? Does he cross over and go back to David? No, he he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. I think that there is a kind of dignity to his death, isn't there? Tragic, yes, but dignity. He knows the game is up. He's had his day in the sun and he's backed the wrong horse. But here's the question. Here's the question about Ahithophel. Not not why did he hang himself, but why did he defect from David's side to Absalom's side in the first place? Ahithophel was on David's side. And then he switched. And then he changed. Why leave the king for the pretender king? Why leave David's side for Absalom's side? Listen to this. I've got this in quote marks in my notes. I have no idea who said this, but not me. Ahithophel's big failure was his failure to accept the grace of God that he extended to David. He couldn't handle that. And his failure to accept that the purpose of God was to establish a kingdom through somebody like David. It's got to be true, hasn't it? His big failure was that he looked at David and he said to God, Him? Him? You're going to use him? No, that cannot be right. Do you know why Ahithophel defected? Because of bitterness. Bitterness wormed its way into his soul, didn't it? Who was Ahithophel? He was the grandfather of Bathsheba. He remembered what David had done to his family. No, I cannot accept grace to a man like that. Bitterness wormed its way into his soul. You know, just this past week, I read the most wonderful book on bitterness. Such a wonderful book. I'm going to have to preach it to you soon. It helped me tremendously. I think it will help you. It will help all of us. Guilt is for our own sin. But bitterness is what we have for other people's sin against us. 
And here's the thing, friends. Bitterness only exists when the, when the sins against us are close. Bitterness is what we keep for parents, for grandparents, for siblings, for an immediate superior or an immediate subordinate. And here's another thing about bitterness. You, you know you're bitter when you remember all the details. Your mind can go back six years, 10 years, 16, 20 years. You remember what somebody was wearing as they spoke to you when they said the words that hurt you so deeply. You remember everything. What she said, where she was when she said it, what the day was, what the date was. It's all embedded. It's all true for Ahithophel, isn't it? He is bitter because... This is what David did to his granddaughter, to her family, and how it hurt. And how dare God do this for David's house? How dare he? Do you know, brothers and sisters, when all is said and done, it's true, isn't it, that other people's sins wound us. Other people's sins wound us, but bitterness is our sin, not theirs. Our sin, not theirs. When we are bitter towards them, we will be bitter towards God. How dare he bless them? How dare he keep his promises to them? How dare he extend his throne through history, through this family? Oh, friends, dear brothers, dear sisters this evening, you belong to God with one perfect, surprising plan. You know, I think some of us are okay with the surprise being us. God using us. That's a surprise we're happy with, whether we're well-known or unknown. But we're not okay if the surprise means God using them, him, her. Not, not him, Lord. Not them. Oh, how bitter. Oh, may it never be for me, for you, for us, with our King. Amen.